some of your role models in life. Maybe it's your mom or your dad. Maybe it's one of your grandparents. Maybe it's an older brother, a little sister. Maybe it's a teacher from school. Maybe it's your tetherball coach. I don't know, somebody in your life that is an encouragement to you, somebody that helps you along. All right, let's play a little mental drill here. I'm going to give you some words, and I want you to think of a person, a role model in your life that matches these words, okay? So it could be somebody that you know. It could be somebody famous that you've never met, or it could be somebody famous in history. So any of those categories are fine. So go ahead and start kind of swirling around your role models, and I'm going to give you a word, and in this little mental drill, I want you to think of that person, that role model that goes with these words. Okay, here's the first word, intelligence. Who is a role model in your life when it comes to intelligence? All right, how about humor? Who is a role model in your life when it comes to humor? How about creativity? Who's a role model of creativity in your life? How about kindness? Who is a role model of kindness in your life? And then one more. How about work ethic? Who's that person that sticks out in your mind when it comes to work ethic? Now, some of you may have just pulled a Phil Connors. You know, you were just thinking about yourself. You know, you're like, hey, intelligence, that's me. Uh, Humor, creativity, kindness, me, me, me. Work ethic, me also. You know, you're just thinking about yourself and... Okay, whatever. Some of you, though, thought, hey, I know how to take all of those characteristics and many other characteristics, and I see all of those things in one role model, just one person, Chuck Norris. That's right. All of those things. I see all those things in Chuck Norris, you know. I mean, after all, when Chuck Norris went off to college, he sat down with his father and said, okay, Dad, now you're the man of the house. We all have role models, don't we? We've all had people who instructed us or invested in us or inspired us. We have these people in our lives that have made a difference. And the very nature of what it means to be a role model is that in some way we model our lives after that person. There's something we take from them. In other words, we don't just admire them. We actually follow them. We we follow after the pattern that they've set. Author Bob Goff said this, It will be the people with the greatest love, not the most information, who will influence us to change. And likewise, generally speaking, we tend to follow after people who have the greatest love. We follow after those who are very good at loving, specifically their love toward us. So, that's the case, what is the purest definition of love? What's the purest definition of love? When you, when you peel away the romance novels, when you peel away the chick flicks, which, by the way, I'm a, I'm a chick flick guy. I am. I don't know why I am. I just am. Now, I will not watch the Hallmark Channel. Nope, not at all. But, but I am a chick flick guy for some reason. But when you peel away the romance novels and when you peel away the chick flicks, when you peel away the foil wrappers from Dove Chocolate, when you peel all that stuff away, what is love. How could we define true love? Let's see if we can find out. We look in today at John 15, beginning with verse 13. This is Jesus, and Jesus says, 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was about to be arrested. He was about to be tortured. He was about to be executed. And so what's he doing hours before these awful things were going to happen to him? Well, he's spending time with his closest friends. He's spending time with his disciples. And in that time, he's giving them a definition of love. Why? Well, he knew what they were about to face. He knew what was going to happen in their life over the next few hours, over the next few days, over the next few weeks, the next few months. He knew they needed a good definition of love to make it through those things. He knew they needed a good definition of love because they were going to feel separated from God and he wanted them to know that they were right with God. He wanted them to have a a good definition of love because they were going to be frustrated and afraid and scared and confused out of their minds. And in all of that, he wanted them to have this definition of love so that they would know that they have hope and they have peace and they have joy. He knew they needed that definition. Look, I know some of your stories. I know some of what you're going through. I know some of what's happening in your life. But every single one of us, we need a good definition of love. We do. We cannot make it through life if our definition of love is from the romance novels or the chick flicks or the full wrappers from Dove Chocolate. We need a definition of love. Jesus, spending time with his friends, giving them a definition of love. And here's the thing. Ultimately, love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. It's a decision to seek and desire the highest good for others. Love is a decision. So what is the highest good? The psalmist put it this way. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. The highest good in the universe is knowing God. The highest joy in the universe is knowing God. The greatest treasure, the richest treasure in the universe is being right with God. And the only way a person can be right with God is to be saved. And the only way a person can be saved is because Jesus acted upon these words that he shared. Jesus, in in hours, he was going to lay down his life for his friends. And his friends, man, they were fantastic. They were the best. They always were kind. They were always cooperative. They always obeyed. They were always helpful. They were super. They were the best. Not really. Now, his friends, they, they waffled in their faith. They were arrogant. They were petty. They were lazy. They argued with one another. They were rebellious. They were disobedient. One of them was actually planning to betray Jesus. These were his friends, his closest friends, yet Jesus died for them. Jesus loved them. He he gave himself for them. He laid down his life for those friends. How did he love them? Well, he loved them because he chose them to be his disciples. He he chose them to be his ambassadors. 
He loved them because he, he poured the life of God into their lives. He prayed for them. He encouraged them. He taught them. He instructed them. And he gave them life. How did he give them life? Well, in this moment, in this scene, Jesus is giving them the clear, pure definition of love. And that clear, pure definition of love is the driving force of life. The way that Jesus is describing love, it is the driving force of life. So what is this clear, pure definition of love? What is, what is true love according to Jesus? Years ago, our family was watching a movie about a, a man named Ernest. He was a, a wood carver, and his wife had, had died from cancer. And in the movie, he had stumbled into this relationship with this rebellious teenager. And that teenager, his parents were going through a very angry separation. And in one scene, the, the mom is talking to Ernest. And she said, hey, you know what? I, I remembered your wife. I knew who she was. She was a very kind and very gracious person. And then she said this. She goes, it must have been great to, to have a perfect marriage. And Ernest chuckled and said, perfect no, far from it. He said, but we did love each other. And he said, and love is mostly sacrifice. That's the clear, pure definition of love that Jesus is giving his friends. Love is mostly sacrifice. It's not just a feeling. It's a decision. And it's a decision to sacrifice. I was reading a story Chuck Colson told about some American soldiers during World War II. They had been captured. They were now prisoners of war. They were, they were put in a very hard labor camp. And there was 20 prisoners in this group, and their responsibility every day was to go and dig. They were given a shovel, and that's what they had to do all day was dig and dig and dig. And at the end of the day, they would come back, and the guard would, would count the soldiers, and he would count their shovels. Well, one night when they came back, there were 20 prisoners, but there were only 19 shovels. The guard got mad, furious. He said, who didn't bring back your shovel? Who, who's the guilty person? None of the prisoners said a word. So the guard took his gun out, and he said, I'm going to shoot five of you until the guilty person steps forward. And after about 10 seconds of agonizing silence, this 19-year-old soldier stepped forward and took responsibility. The guard took him off to the side, immediately executed him, turned to the other prisoners and said, that's what happens if you're not careful. And then he left. The other prisoners, they looked back and they counted the shovels again. And there were 20 guard had miscounted. This 19-year-old boy gave his life for his fellow prisoners. One pastor, in talking about this story, he said, can you imagine the emotions and the feelings that those prisoners had when they knelt down over his body? And then he said this, in the five or ten seconds of silence, that boy had weighed his whole future in the balance. A future wife, 
an education, a new truck, children, a career, fishing with his dad, and he chose death so that others might live. Ultimately, love is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's a decision to seek and desire the highest good for others. Love is a decision to sacrifice. Someone might be thinking, man, Dal, you're not a very good preacher. Because <laughs> that's the story you share at the end of the sermon, man, not, not up in the middle. Normally that would be true, but, but there's a reason I shared it here. And that reason is connected to this truth. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ did not just die for your sin. He immensely suffered for your sin. See, I might be walking down the road and, and see you in the middle of the road and see a car coming, and I might jump out to push you out of the way to save you from that car. And that car may hit me, and I could be killed instantly, and my suffering would be just confined to that one moment. Or maybe this, a similar scenario, and, and I survive the hit from the car. I'm in the hospital for weeks, but then I'm, I'm discharged from the hospital in a wheelchair, and I stay in the wheelchair for the rest of my life, and I suffer in that wheelchair. Both of those are noble stories, but neither one of them compare to the suffering of Jesus on the cross for you. Jesus did not at the last second jump out to try to save you. That's, that's not how the plan worked. Jesus left the pleasure, the perfection of heaven to come to a manger, to come and live for one purpose, and that is to substitute himself for the penalty of your sin. Jesus came to sacrifice himself for you. He didn't at the last minute run up a hill and jump up on the cross. Now, from heaven to the manger to the carpenter's shop to the temple to the dusty roads between villages to the, to the chambers at Pilate's palace down the long Via Dolorosa, Jesus was making his way always to the cross. That was the plan. It was always the plan from before the foundations of the world. It was the plan that Jesus would sacrifice himself for you. But Jesus was not just a faithful, sacrificial teenage soldier. Peter said this about him, 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. <laughs> Jesus committed no sin. He never committed a sin. No lying, no gossip, no complaining, no lust, no murder, no tax fraud, no sinful anger. No abuse with words, no abuse with silence, no abuse with violence, no sin. None. Jesus never sinned. I mean, show of hands, anybody can put that on your college application? Anybody make a little note about that on your resume? Can anybody honestly say that at your funeral? Yep, they, they never sinned, not a single time. Are any of us more innocent than Jesus? No. 
And yet Jesus, in his perfect innocence, substituted himself for us. In his perfect innocence, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Jesus was not just a faithful, sacrificial teenage soldier. Jesus, his life was a perfect life. His life was a sinless life. And someone has said that makes his life the most valuable life. And so Jesus took the most valuable life and he gave the most valuable life for you. Jesus didn't make the ultimate sacrifice. He is the only ultimate sacrifice. There is no other ultimate sacrifice compared to him. The reason the word ultimate only applies to him is because only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus was sinless. This is what Jesus did. By this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. The perfect Son of God substituted Himself for us. That is matchless love. That is love that that has no comparison. And when we think about love, we might think, well, I know what love is because my parents raised me. And they put food on the table and, and they gave me an education. Or we may say, well, I know what love is because, you know, my kids took care of me when I got older and I couldn't take care of myself anymore. Or we may say, well, I know what love is because I give good presents on birthdays and Christmas and St. Patrick's Day and whatever other holidays out there. I'm a good gift giver. Or we might say, I understand love because I know how to tell people I love you. Those things are great. They're all good. But they aren't the ultimate definition of love. How do we know what love is. How do we understand what love is? This is how we know Jesus, the perfect Son of God, laid His life down for you. That's how we know what love is. The Prince of Peace was condemned. The Lamb of God was sacrificed. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was executed for us. Jesus laid his life down for us. The one person on the planet that did not deserve death was sentenced to death. The one person on the planet that least deserved to be executed on a cross was crucified. By this, by that, we know love. By that, we know what love is. Matchless love, vast love, measureless love. By this, we know love. You see, ultimately, love is not a feeling. It's a decision. A decision to to seek and desire the highest good for others. Love is a decision to sacrifice. Jesus, he desired the highest good for me and for you. And because he desired the highest good, and the highest good is, is to be right with God, And the only way to be right with God is because of the highest sacrifice that was ever made by Jesus. Matchless love, matchless sacrifice. This is who Jesus is. The Bible explains it this way. When we were selfish, when we were arrogant, when we were stubborn, when we were helpless, when we were depraved, when we were dead in our sin, that's when Jesus died for us. That that was the the moment that Jesus died. So that's how we know what love is. 
See, if we're really honest with our hearts and we do the math, we, we have to say there's really no reason the perfect Son of God should look at us and say, yes, I'm going to die for that guy. I'm going to die for that gal. There's, there's nothing about us that should stir Jesus to sacrifice himself for us. See, we love for reasons, right? I mean, I might love my wife because she's pretty. I might love my kids because they're fun. I might love my neighbors because they bring me bacon. You know, I might love my church because they bring me cake. You know, I mean, we have reasons for loving people, right? We have, we have triggers for love. But when Jesus looked down on this preteen kid whose face was full of acne, he didn't look at someone who loved God. He looked at a kid who went to church, never missed church, was in church all the time. He looked at a good kid, you know, okay kid, nice kid. But he didn't look down and see someone who was sold out to honor God, to, to love the truth of the Bible. He saw a, an arrogant, self-centered, preteen kid. And in that moment, Jesus said, Thou, I sacrifice myself for you. You owed a debt that you could not pay, so I satisfied the payment. There was nothing you could do. I paid the debt for you. Before the foundations of the world, this was the plan, and I have executed the plan. The plan has been fulfilled. So now come and follow me. And I did. Why? Because I saw true love. Not the expressions of temporary love that, that we experience here on earth, but I saw the king of kings dying for one of his enemies. Me, a rebellious sinner, arrogant, helpless, depraved, dead in my sin. That's when Jesus said, come follow me. I, I have died to satisfy the payment of your sin. That's how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. We sang it just a little while ago, right? What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Matchless power, matchless truth, matchless sacrifice, matchless love. There is no comparison. We can't find anyone. We will never find anyone that has the love of Jesus. The old hymn says it this way, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his, his hands and his side. Why? Because the, the hands on the side of Jesus remind us of what he has done. Behold, Jesus has laid his life down for you. So what do we do with that? Do we look at the matchless love of Jesus and admire him? Or do we look at the matchless love of Jesus and follow him because of it? Jesus said one more thing to his friends in verse 14. You are my friends if you do 
what I command you. How do you know if you're really a friend of Jesus? Is it a sinner's prayer? Is it baptism? Is it being a member of the church? Not according to Jesus. Jesus says that the only way you'll know that you are his friend is if you obey what he commands. In other words, that in some way, shape, or form, people will know that you're a Christian because they see some kind of evidence in your life that you love Jesus, that you love other Christians, and you love people who are not Christians. Let me hurt our feelings a little bit. Over the last 12 months, how are we doing with that last one? What has the last 12 months exposed about the average Christian and the average church? Have we become more loving to people who do not believe in our Judeo-Christian values? Or have we become angrier at people who are going to hell? What's our attitude been the last 12 months? The way we post on social media, the way we talk in the hallway at church, do we sound like people who have the good news of salvation when this world is over? Do we sound like people who love people who need Jesus? Do we love the lost or are we angry at the lost? What do we see mostly in the church today? What has the last 12 months exposed in the church of Jesus Christ? Do we love Jesus? Do we love other Christians? But maybe most specifically, how loving are we toward people who are not Christians? Where is the evidence of the gospel in our lives toward people who don't vote like us? who don't live like us, who don't look like us, who don't like our music or our cars or our neighborhoods or even our religion. How are the people of God doing at following Jesus when it comes to loving the lost? There's a picture that we have here. Jesus and his kindness and his mercy. He's trying to help us see through his friends, hey, pursue this love. Why? Because it's good for us. Be selfish. If you want to do something for yourself, follow Jesus. Love the way Jesus loves. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the difference between an admirer and a follower still remains no matter where you are, no matter where you live, no matter what country you're in. And this is what he says. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. And then he goes on. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he praises, prizes Christ. He renounces nothing. He gives up nothing. He will not reconstruct his life. He will make no adjustments in his life. He will not be what he admires and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. In other words, the question for all of us is this. Are we an admirer of Jesus or are we a follower of Jesus? 
Are we a Sunday-only spectator? Or are we a Monday-to-Sunday sacrificer? Where is our heart toward the truth of the gospel? There's a story told about a, a woman who was married to a very demanding husband. He had a a list of rules and regulations that she had to follow every day, and he made sure that he went over that list with her every day. After many years of marriage, that husband died, and and the woman remarried. And one day she was cleaning up, and, and she found that list. And she looked through that list, all of those rules, all of those regulations, all of those demands from the husband. And she couldn't help but laugh because she realized that she did all of those things now that she used to hate. Why? Because she loved her husband. It was no longer a list of rules. It was no longer a list of things that she had to do. It was a list of things that she got to do. Her love drove her to sacrifice And it was a joy for her to sacrifice. Ultimately, love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. It's a decision to seek the highest and desire the highest good for others. Love is a decision to sacrifice. So, before your next complaint about the economy, and we all have them, before your next criticism of a politician, and we all have them, before your next post about gas prices, before your next grumble about COVID protocols, before your next moment where you are sitting at your house or in traffic or in the pew of the church and you are so Aggravated, you are so frustrated, you are so discouraged, you are so overwhelmed with everything happening in your life. Before that moment, just drop back and punt for about 10 seconds. Just, just take 10 seconds in traffic. Take 10 seconds to turn the radio off or the TV off or social media off. What just just 10 seconds? to remember this. Jesus laid down his life for you. That is how we know what love is. So let us not be admirers. Let us be followers. And followers love. And love is mostly sacrifice.